So we're beginning a new series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. So we will begin with Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Hear now the eternal living word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we begin our study of what is referred to as the gospel according to Mark. And it's called this because early church history unanimously said that the author of this book was a man named John Mark. And we know a little about John Mark because he's mentioned in the book of Acts a few times. He was the cousin of Barnabas. And he accompanied Barnabas and Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. But then he left early and had a falling out with the apostle. But then only to have his relationship with Paul restored at the end of Paul's life. Paul mentions him in a loving and fond way in his letters to the Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy. And then in 1 Peter, John Mark is referenced as laboring alongside Peter. And the tradition, starting from the end of the first century, tells us that John Mark is the author of this gospel with much of the testimony coming from Peter himself, which would have given this book its apostolic authority. And there's much evidence within the book itself that points to Peter being the eyewitness source. Mark's gospel is widely considered to be the first gospel written. And we have 
the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels because they have so much in They tell many of the same stories, often in the same words, frequently following the same order. And it's most likely and most commonly believed that Matthew and Luke each had a copy of Mark to use and to help them write their own accounts, their own versions of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so through this series, we will study what Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has recorded about Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Lord's servant, Jesus, our Savior. Mark's gospel begins with a prologue. That is the first 13 verses that we'll be considering this morning. And we'll focus on three themes from the prologue of Mark's gospel. A new exodus, a new Elijah, and a new beginning. A new exodus, a new Elijah, and a new beginning. So Mark begins his account in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there's been several different theories on what Mark means by this statement. It's actually not a sentence, because there's no verbs. It's just a standalone clause at the beginning of the book. And, And the most likely reason for that is because this is the title of the whole book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so why would Mark write this as the title? The gospel at the time that Mark wrote this had only one meaning in Christian circles. And given all the evidence in the work itself and from outside sources, we can narrow down that Mark wrote this around 65 AD, close to the time of the deaths of both Peter and Paul. And this means that the ministries of Peter and Paul have finished. They had preached the gospel faithfully for decades at this point. Paul had gone on three missionary journeys, planting churches, preaching the gospel everywhere he went. And so this Greek word, euangelion, this is what we translate as gospel, means good news. And within the New Testament, it refers to what the apostles were preaching. It refers to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It refers to the truth of salvation found in Jesus Christ. The gospel was and is the power of God for salvation. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, believing in this gospel, you are a new creation. Now, when we, in our context, refer to the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we say gospel in this respect, we're talking about what is now known as a literary genre of its own. A gospel, an account of the life, work, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, Luke, and John. But when Mark wrote this, no one was using the word gospel in this way. No other gospel accounts existed yet. The only use of the words gospel of Jesus Christ referred exclusively to what was being preached and proclaimed throughout the world to the gospel that was radically transforming people in its path. And so this title for Mark's book, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, tells us his intent in writing this book. He wants to give the story behind the 
changing, life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ that is being preached and transforming the world. So this account is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the origin story of this proclamation of the good news of salvation. It's the backstory behind the preaching of Jesus Christ that spread like wildfire and transformed lives on its way. Now Mark gives us a clue to how Jesus accomplishes all of this by announcing him as the Son of God. The Jews of Jesus knew exactly what this meant. It meant that Jesus was equal with God. This is an assertion of the divinity of Jesus. And Mark proclaims this from the beginning of the backstory to the gospel. Because the divinity of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God, is necessary to fully make sense of the good news that Jesus brings. And so Mark begins the story of the good news of Jesus, not with a birth narrative like Matthew and Luke, but by immediately introducing Old Testament prophecy. He writes, starting in verse 2, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark writes that this quote is written in Isaiah, but there's actually three different Old Testament books quoted here. The first is Malachi 3 verse 1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare Second is Exodus 23, verse 20. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And so the quote in verse 2 is actually a combination of those two Old Testament verses, which are quite similar to each other. And then verse 3 is a direct quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And so why does Mark open his backstory of the gospel of Jesus With this combination of Old Testament quotes. Because he wants to set the stage for the entire story. He wants us to understand that the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he's laying the foundation for this entire book. In Malachi, the messenger being sent is later identified in Malachi 4 as Elijah. And this Elijah figure will prepare the way for Yahweh. The Lord himself. His mission is to bring about the repentance of Israel. To bring about the repentance of God's people. So that the coming of the Lord won't result in judgment on them. It's this coming day of the Lord. The day of judgment. Of refining by fire. And so our first theme from the prologue of Mark's gospel. Is the arrival of the new Elijah. John the Baptist is clearly the Elijah figure mentioned. Mark tells us that John is baptizing people in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then in verse 6 he tells us, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And this is almost the exact description of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. And so what does it mean that John is this new Elijah figure? It means that Mark begins with a warning to his readers. 
that the fire of God's purifying judgment is at hand. John the Baptist, the new Elijah, came to called God's people to repentance, not just the Gentiles. He, he come to prepare the hearts of the coming of the Lord. And the baptism that John was performing was a cleansing ritual. It, it was symbolized the washing of sin. And this is why the Pharisees objected to what John was doing, because this was something they did for Gentile converts. This was not normal for the people of Israel. To do. They declared that the Israelites, the children of God, God's covenant people, had no need for cleansing. The baptism that John was giving, they taught, was for Gentiles, those who were unclean, those that needed to be cleansed. And so this created a major controversy because John, in his baptism, was very popular among the people. But then Mark gives us the message of John the Baptist. In verses 7 and 8, he writes, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's message is not only about repentance and the coming of God's fire of judgment, but also to point us to Christ. John stands in the line of Old Testament prophets. And just like those prophets, John spoke God's word about the present situation, and he revealed God's word about what is to come. John was preparing the people for the coming of Jesus. Jesus was alive at that time, but he hadn't yet begun his public ministry. John was teaching the significance of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, that Jesus was much greater than John himself. He was much more powerful than John. His value was so much greater than John's that John wasn't even worthy to untie his shoes. And this Christ Jesus was coming not only for judgment, but to do something amazing. John's baptism of water, which only represented the washing of their sins. But Jesus brings a greater baptism. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit of God himself. And so for the first century reader, Mark has given some clues to why this gospel was turning the life of those who believed in it upside down. Why were these people who were selfish, sinners, abusers, drunkards, Roman soldiers, sinners of all walks of life, rich and poor, why were they all radically transformed by this gospel? Well, Mark tells us this Jesus, who was the Christ, the Messiah, was also the Son of God. And he baptized people with the Holy Spirit. And so John, the new Elijah, was the messenger sent to pave the way for his coming. Now the use of the quote from Exodus, which is very similar to the Malachi 3 quote, adds a different element. If the Malachi quote points to God's coming judgment, the Exodus quote points to God's Deliverance. John the Baptist is not only the voice of judgment calling for repentance, he also points forward to the one who will deliver God's people and lead them into the promised land. Mark is framing his entire story with allusions to God's promise to lead his people into the land. And God's sending of a messenger to warn his people 
of the coming judgment. But there's a third and probably the most prominent illusion which comes from the Isaiah quote. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And this is pretty much a direct quote from Isaiah 40 verse 3. And to understand what Mark is doing here, and we'll see Isaiah consistently in this prologue and throughout Mark's gospel, you have to understand the context of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is broken into three major sections. The first 39 chapters pronounce judgment, condemning both Judah and Israel and the pagan nations around them as well. Then in the middle section, uh, chapters 40 to 55, it deals with the servant of the Lord. And this servant of the Lord will bring about a second exodus, a new exodus for Israel and God's people. Then in the final section, it deals with a renewed Israel. There are these servants of the Lord, servants who serve this servant of the Lord, this individual servant. And so the quote from Isaiah 40 is right at the beginning of this middle section, which introduces the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And in that passage, God is comforting his people. He's promising this new exodus of salvation. The theme of a new exodus is so prominent in Isaiah. One commentator wrote that Isaiah is more about the exodus than the book of Exodus itself. And the prophet Isaiah goes on to explain how the nation of Israel has failed as the Lord's servant through their disobedience to him. And then he sets forth this singular representative of Israel, this faithful servant of Yahweh. And it's this faithful servant who will usher God's people into the new exodus. He will bring them into salvation, into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earths. And so this is our second theme from the prologue of Mark's gospel. That Jesus has come to bring the new exodus. Mark is announcing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the Lord's servant. It's the fulfillment of the new and final exodus. That we will be led into the ultimate promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. And although Mark also alludes to Malachi and Exodus, as I mentioned, as you might have noticed, he mentions the prophet Isaiah by name at the beginning of this quote, because this is the main thrust of what he's trying to say. He wants his readers to know right from the get-go that Jesus is the servant of Yahweh from Isaiah. Jesus is the obedient and faithful servant of God that will bring about the new exodus. And he will do so through his obedient life, where Israel had failed. And he will do so as foretold in Isaiah 53, through his suffering death. Jesus is the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. He's the one who saves his people through his death. Isaiah 53 said he will be despised and rejected by men, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He will take the sins of his people on himself and lead them into a new exodus. An exodus where God frees his people, not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin and death. And what would have been even more astonishing to first century readers that would have known this context, the Lord in those quotes from the Old Testament is referring 
to Yahweh. Mark is identifying Jesus as the presence of Yahweh himself. Jesus is the coming of the Lord. Mark is giving us the keys to understanding the whole story of the gospel that he has written in his prologue. Jesus as the obedient, faithful, suffering servant of the Lord from the book of Isaiah. He is Yahweh, the Lord himself in the flesh, come to fulfill what he has promised. And Jesus himself even proclaimed that he was the fulfillment of the servant of the Lord. When Jesus begins his ministry in Luke's gospel, in Luke 4, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and in worship he reads from Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This passage from Isaiah 61 is the servant of Yahweh speaking. And now this servant is proclaiming that he has been anointed by the Spirit to proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after reading this, Jesus rolls up the scroll and said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was Jesus himself proclaiming that he is the servant of Yahweh from Isaiah. Jesus claims to be the one who will bring about the new exodus. To free his people from the bondage of sin and death and to bring us to the promised new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah speaks of this later, that the new Jerusalem will be the city that belongs to the servant and his people. And Jesus is this servant who will suffer for the sins of his people and then be exalted in glory. And this is the foundation for Mark's gospel. And as this story unfolds, we'll see the obedient life of the Son of God. We'll see him faithfully fulfilling his role as the servant all the while building towards his sacrificial death in the place of his people. And in doing this, Jesus delivers his people. He delivers you and I in the new exodus, leading us into the promised land. Then Mark gives us the story of Jesus' baptism. Starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So Mark's account of the baptism of Jesus is very brief, but it contains significant details. Notice it says the heavens being torn open. That, once again, is a reference to Isaiah. This time, chapter 64, which we read in our responsive reading. Mark is following his opening appeal to Isaiah, claiming that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Now the heavens being torn open and the descent of the Holy Spirit is a sign that God himself has come into power. The long-awaited new exodus has begun. And just as the prophet Isaiah foretold repeatedly, 
Mark consistently will mention throughout his story the fear and amazement of Jesus' unexpected mighty deeds. But Mark includes yet another Old Testament reference in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And this again is a combination of two Old Testament quotes. The first is Psalm 2 verse 7. Where the Lord says to his anointed king, his Messiah. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the second again is from Isaiah. This time, chapter 42, speaking about the servant of the Lord, which has been referenced several times, God says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And so in combining these references, Mark is establishing Jesus as both the promised son of David, the promised anointed king, the Messiah, from Psalm 2, and he's also reiterating that Jesus is the servant of Yahweh from Isaiah. Jesus is the obedient and beloved Son of God, the Messiah, whose first public action announces the coming new exodus, the coming salvation, as we will see next week. The kingdom of God is at hand. But there's another connection with both Psalm 2 and Isaiah. If you recall, we just studied Psalm 2 this summer, that the nations rage against the Lord, There's a rebellion against God and his anointed Messiah. And this opposition to the coming king is also seen in Isaiah. The servant of the Lord was going to meet opposition. So throughout Mark's account of the gospel, we consistently see Jesus coming into conflict with opposition from demons and from the people. So in the moment of Jesus' baptism, Amazingly, we see the Trinity. We see the three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all present. And Mark's account specifically identifies Jesus not only with the very presence of Yahweh himself, but the Son of David, the Messiah, who will finally triumph over all his enemies, over all the enemies of God's people. And with the Lord's servant, who is anointed by the Holy Spirit, he will deliver Israel's blind and deaf captives, and he will bring justice to the nations. And this servant of the Lord, this Jesus, the Christ, will meet opposition. He will suffer greatly, and he will do all of this to bring about the new exodus of salvation for his people. But after the moment of his baptism, Mark records Jesus going into the wilderness. Starting in verse 12, he writes, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now going into the wilderness for 40 days, immediately after coming out of the waters of baptism, Jesus is reliving the history of Israel. Jesus is answering the call to sonship that Israel failed. Jesus is obedient where Israel sinned. In the original Exodus, Israel came out of the waters of the Red Sea. And they immediately went into the wilderness for 40 years. Where they gave in to temptation. And they failed the test that God had given them. They sinned in the wilderness. Jesus, however, successfully rejects the temptations of Satan. Passing the test that Israel failed. 
And so the baptism and the temptation in the wilderness of Jesus sets the stage for the new era of God's redemptive history that has begun. And this is the third theme we see from the prologue of Mark's gospel. A new beginning. The history of God's redemption has reached its climax. God's Messiah, his Christ, has come. And the Messiah is Yahweh himself. The eternal Son of God in the flesh, coming to fulfill his promise to bring about a new exodus. To deliver his people from the bondage to sin and death. The entire storyline of the Bible finds its culmination in the life and work of Jesus Christ. And Mark has set the foundation for this new era by connecting Jesus to the obedient, faithful, suffering servant of Isaiah who brings about the new exodus. And in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord in the final exodus has spiritual offspring. And these offspring are servants of the Lord themselves. The offsprings of the servant are a renewed people of God, composed of Jews and Gentiles, finally fulfilling God's call to bring the nations to himself. And so we see two implications for us in this. The first is that you are called to discipleship. Through Mark's gospel, you are called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're called to be a disciple of Jesus, the servant of the Lord. He models obedience, and you are to imitate him. In his life, work, death, and resurrection, Jesus frees you from the bondage of sin. He frees you from the bondage of the law, from the bondage of death. And in doing so, he purchased you with his blood. You are his. He calls you to follow him. He calls you to be his disciples, and he will be your Lord. He wants you to serve him, to follow him in his obedient sacrifice of serving the Lord. So he models this obedient, sacrificial service, and he calls you to do the same. When you believe in Jesus Christ and receive and rest upon him alone for your salvation, this is your life. Continual repentance, sanctification, growing in your knowledge and understanding of the Lord through his spirit, through his word, growing into the image of Christ, fulfilling the role of the servant of the Lord, answering the call to discipleship. The second implication really is for both as individual Christians and collectively as the church. Israel failed in their calling to be a light to the nations. God called Israel to make his glory known to the nations, to spread the fame of God's name and blessing to the nations. But there was a disconnect between God's high calling for Israel and their wayward sinfulness. There was a disconnect between God's ideal that he set for Israel and the dark reality of their sinful lives. Israel had no concern for the outcasts, for the lost nations around them. But that was why God called them to himself. That was why God delivered them, to make his glory known to the nations, for them to be his holy vessel, to bring the nations to himself. And so in Jesus, the true Israel, that call has come to us. It's come to you. As a spiritual offspring of Jesus Christ, he gives the great commission 
to his people. The church has the duty, the command, and the commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And so we, as his church, must be faithful to this commission. It's why we exist, to be his faithful, spirit-empowered offspring, who obediently follow Jesus Christ and make God's glory known to the lost around us. We are to be a light on a hill, that God's holiness can be seen by unbelievers. We are to care for our own sheep. We are to love and disciple the members of this church, never neglecting God's children here at Third. But we also must not neglect our community. There's an urgency to this call. The people around us are lost. They're without God. They have a dire need of reconciliation that is only found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so let us show the world that we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. Let us continue to preach and teach the salvation found in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Let us proclaim the cross and love for our neighbor with a radical love. Because God sent Jesus to live the life you could never live and die the death that you deserve so that you can live with a new life, showing God's glory to your neighbor, fulfilling the great commission and God's purpose for the church, living obediently, faithfully, sacrificially as Jesus did, all to the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you to praise you, to glorify you, and thank you for your new exodus in Jesus Christ. We know that we, as Israel, have failed to be your servant. We often sin, but you sent Jesus to be the true Israel, to be your true servant on our behalf that we can have new life in him. That through faith in him, we are your people and we will come into the new heavens and a new earth. We know that this is only through the baptism of the spirit that you have given us. And so we thank you. And we humble ourselves knowing that we need your spirit to continue to empower us. To continue to enable us to be the light to the world. To be faithful servants of you and to bring the nation to come to know the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen.